0: Exodus 15. We have a lot to cover. So I just want to read a couple verses from the text and then pray and then get into it. I'm going to read actually the last verse we're going to look at today, chapter 17 verse 7. You want to be in chapter 15 verse 22, but we're going to end with chapter 7 17 verse 7. So let me read that verse. And then we'll pray, and we'll get into it. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And Father, we pray that you would indeed remind us, show us, Assure us that you are among us. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for that promise that you've told us as your people, as your followers, you will never leave us nor forsake us. But Lord, we we just confess how weak we are, how prone to wonder our hearts are. And so Lord, we pray you'd use this time in your word, your Holy Spirit would speak to us, And your word would bring the life that's needed, the fresh life that's needed to get us back on track. Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you desire to make yourself known to us. And we thank you that you've given us your word to that end. And so we pray you'd meet us here. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Amen. Now, if you guys know me well, you know that I am a world-class complainer. I'm really good at complaining. Uh, In fact, uh, left to myself, I think I'll find something negative in anything. I just, I'm really good at grumbling. And so when I moved to England, I felt right at home. (laughs) As one young uh, Englishman said to me, he says, if whinging was an Olympic sport, we'd get gold every time. (laughs) And I I found this funny, though. Many of my my British friends, especially maybe a slightly older generation, more like my age, would would come to me, they'd complain about something, and they'd go, mustn't grumble. (laughs) So that's the title of today's message, mustn't grumble. And as funny as that is, and as common as that is, I hope that we see today that grumbling is something that we need to be really careful of. That, that, that when our hearts have a tendency to only see the negative, to only complain, to, 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 to grumble about our circumstance, there's something in there that's incredibly unhealthy, actually very even dangerous. And what we want to see today is, is we're looking at Israel and where they are in this point of the book of, uh, of Exodus. We want to see the parallels between what they're going through, what they were tempted with, and our lives now. Because we find they're in this place where they they have already been delivered from slavery in Egypt. But they have not yet made it to the promised land. So they are indeed God's people. They've been God's people. They have indeed been redeemed. They they, They are being brought into covenant. But they haven't been brought all the way to the promised land. They're in this already but not yet stage. And that's exactly where we find ourselves. If we have put our faith in Jesus, if, if we are wanting to follow Him as Savior and Lord, if we've been born of His Spirit, we are already in His kingdom, but not yet in His kingdom. And in this in-between place, one of the things that we're most tempted to do is complain, grumble. We, 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 we don't like what we experience, and so we, we complain about it. But here's the good news. The good news is what we're going to see today is God gives us really good reason not to grumble. He gives us really good reason. And really, it all circles around his grace. So let's pick it up. I want to talk about three things about grumbling that we need to know. And the first one is going to be seen in chapter 15, starting in verse 22. And that is grumbling often begins with real needs. Look at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they were in the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water, water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it's called, it's named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now, let's be realistic about their situation. Three days in the desert without water is bad. Finally getting to a water source that you can't drink is worse. This is a real need. We're not talking about, I need a new Nintendo 64. We're talking about, if we don't drink water, three days is about the max you can go as a human being without water. This is a serious need. But it's interesting is that what we find Israel doing is what we do ourselves. They're more concerned or more convinced of the reality of their need than the reality of their God. And God wants to teach them, like God wants to teach us what it looks like to walk by faith. What it looks like to trust our God as he's revealed himself to be as the one who will provide what we need, who gives us what we need. So we pick it up in verse 25. And so what happens? Moses cries to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There, the Lord made them, uh, made them, made for them. Excuse me, a statute and a rule. And there, He tested them, saying, "If you will diligently listen to My voice, the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer." Now, what's happening here? If you've been with us in Exodus. There's a reversal going on. If you remember, when God brings a judgment on the Egyptians for the oppression of Israel that they brought, when brought, God brings that judgment because Pharaoh won't let his people go. When God brings a judgment, the first judgment was what? Taking drinkable drinkable water and making it basically undrinkable. And so what's God doing here? Taking undrinkable water and making it drinkable. Now there's been a lot of speculation about the fact that God says, take a stick and throw it in there, they say that could be a foreshadow of the cross. It could be, but what what these guys are experiencing is not so much the the method of the miracle, but the message. The message that God had reversed his judgment, that God wasn't against them, he was for them. In fact, it's important that we we recognize, and we're going to see a bit more of this when we get to chapter, uh, we get more of this as we move on, but it's important for us to see that that what God's doing here is he's calling them to obedience in response to what he's already done for them. He's already brought them out of slavery. He's already declared them his people. He's already promised to get them to the promised land. And in in response to that, he's saying, obey. Obey. And I think this is something that doesn't really sit well with us as modern Western Christians. The idea of obedience automatically rings in our head. Legalism, that's not the right gospel. But actually, this is not obeying to be saved. This is obeying because you've been saved. This is not obeying to to gain a relationship with God. This is obeying from a relationship with God. Because when we do what God calls us to, it adds nothing to God, but it adds everything to us. And this is God, in a sense, really preparing the nation of Israel for the giving of his law that we're going to see in weeks to come. But he does this. He he makes the water sweet. And then it says in verse 27, Then they came to this place, Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Now, if you're a thirsty group of people, and you're looking for shade in the desert, and you find the oasis, you're going to go, Oh, thank you, God, this is wonderful. And there's something here. I mean, God, God wants them to know this isn't the promised land. Elam isn't the promised land, but we're, he was intending that this would make them long for the promised land. And, and here's one of the things that we see because when our grumbling, uh, you know, when it begins, and it, it does begin often with real needs, when God meets those real needs, we say, okay, just keep it here, Lord, and we'll be happy. So, so you've met our needs. We're in this really good season where our needs are met. So just don't let us have any more needs. We're happy in Elam. Leave us here. But God has more in store for us than a temporary oasis. He has more in store for them. He wants to do something more for his people. See, the reality is, God doesn't. God doesn't when, when these guys have this real need, God doesn't devalue that need. He doesn't make them feel bad because they have a real need. He's trying to teach them to go to him with that need. To be humble enough to recognize, not only do I have a need, but it's a need. I can't meet, but God, you can. This is what we're exhorted to do in in 1 Peter. Peter's first epistle, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Peter writes, So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. The command is not, don't have worries and cares, it's give those things to God. The command is not, don't have needs, it's seek God to meet your needs. Why? Because God wants to show himself strong in that. So grumbling does often begin with real needs, but here's the, here's the rub. Grumbling usually feeds unbelief. Look what happens in verse, or chapter 16, verse 1. It says, And they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Now, the word sin, don't, don't think of sin as an you've fallen short of the glory of God. That's not the word here. The word here, it's kind of connected to the word Sinai, the name Sinai. It's just a name, all right? So they came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. For, for when we, we sat by the, the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now this as well is a real need. Not as probably desperate as the water, because the truth is they still had a lot of livestock. Wouldn't be a good idea to kill those livestock because they needed them. But still the point is, they weren't necessarily starving But you wonder at this point if they're thinking, okay, we complained before and we got what we wanted, maybe we'll do it again. But there's an issue here. There's an issue where they are actually, their unbelief is distorting their perspective on their situation. When they talk about being in Egypt, oh, when we were in Egypt, we had these great pots of meat. It was true, they had pots of meat. What the pots were full of was the fish that wasn't good enough to sell in the market. You know what happens when you put a bunch of fish in a bucket in the hot sun? Oh, it was so good. Was it? A sushi I don't want to touch, you know what I'm saying? No thanks. And the fact that they had bread to the full. Now, I'd be willing to bet that they were given lots and lots of bread, probably, the, again, the sale, stale bread that couldn't sell in the market, but because they were slaves. You've got to keep slaves fed or they're not going to get the work done. The point is their, 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 their perspective of what was going on was, was twisted. It was distorted. Their, their present pain was motivated them then to, to, to overvalue their past and undervalue the promise of God. That's where they were. This is what we do. And it's often a, a sign that we're drifting in unbelief. What happens? Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the, fifth day, on the, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And then we'll talk about why twice as much in a bit, but I want you to, to think about this for a second. God's testing them. We need to understand something about God testing us. God does not test us because he doesn't know what's in our hearts. God obviously knows what's in our hearts. God tests us because we don't know what's in our hearts. God tests us to show us our own unbelief. This is what he's doing. So in verse 6 it says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, this is what they're asking for, right? Because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but is against the Lord. It's important that we see this because one of the things that happens is is that these guys are blaming Moses for this situation, but actually they're disbelieving God. They're distrusting God. So what happens next? Verse 9. Then Moses says to Aaron, "'Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, "'Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling.'" Aaron goes to speak to them. What do they do? They look at the wilderness. They focus on, that's what the problem is. You brought us here. This is the problem. And who shows up? God does. They look to their problem. They needed to see their God. They needed to see their God. Again, this is not God downplaying their problem. In fact, what I love about this is the fact that this this is what God does. Their unbelief is manifesting itself in a distrust of authority. Now, let's be honest, there's really good reasons sometimes not to trust authority. I mean, the thing we whinge about maybe more than anything is authority. We whinge about the government, we whinge about church leadership, and guess what? We do it, we mess up. So uh, it's, it's okay. But, but a worldview, a Christian worldview, the way we are to look at authority as believers is to recognize all authority, even flawed authority, comes from the one who's in charge of everything. If you don't believe me, if you think I'm making this stuff up, read Romans chapter 13, where Paul talks about the Roman government and we should submit to them as ministers of God, and they were persecuting Christians. I ain't that bad. The government's not that bad. We often whinge and complain about those in authority because we're actually just not trusting the Lord and what he might be doing even through flawed authority. Again, what happens next? Verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? And when they did not know what it was, Moses said to them, It is the bread that God has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather, uh, gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. And you shall take an omer according to the number of the person that each of you, uh, each of you has in his tent. And the number of Israel, uh, the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them, each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Now, this is cool. Because even though these, even though God's people complained against God, even though they complained against authority, they complained against the being in the wilderness, God was still committed to meet their need. You know what that's called? It's called grace. It's called grace. So, so if you've been around church long enough, if you kind of grew up in church or you've been coming to servants for a while, whatever, if you have a, enough of a Christian background, you've probably heard, you know, when people say we're saved by grace, not by works. And you might have thought of, okay, that means I don't really have to worry about the works bit too much. And maybe that's what you thought or maybe you thought, okay, grace is something that kind of gets me in the door. But do you recognize that God only relates to us by grace? He doesn't give us another option. The only way we relate to God is by grace. You say, well, what's grace? Uh, The word means beauty. It often means beauty or attractiveness. But the way the word is used in the scripture, grace really is this. This is how we would define grace theologically, you might say. Grace is God's unmerited favor to us. He gives us what we do not deserve. It's also God's enabling power. But it's really his unmerited favor. God gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy is uh, is us not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. So here, people are complaining against God. They're not really believing God is the God who's who's revealed himself through the, the, the judgments on Egypt, who's delivered them from Egypt. They're not really believing him, and he still says, I'm still committed to provide for you. That's grace. And that's how God wants to relate to us by grace. Verse 19. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Do you see what God's doing? Even though he's warned his, his people, look, you, you need to not gather too much. They gather too much. They try to save it. And even though they try to save it, what happens? It doesn't last. And yet still, listen, even though they're wasting God's provision through the disobedience, still God's committed to provide for them. Still. Do, do you think that, that, the, that you're worse than the Israelites? Seriously, do you think you're worse? Now, let's be honest. You like, oh, I'm way better than them. Well, you have pride. There you go. And God still shows you grace. As we humble ourselves, God shows us grace. That's what he's doing with Israel. Because here's the thing he wants them to know. God wants his people to trust his sufficiency, not their source or their resource. We do this. All of us do this. Now, this is not the Bible teaching that you shouldn't save any money. That's not what the Bible's teaching. You read the book of Proverbs. There's all kinds of of wisdom about good financial stewardship. So I'm not saying we shouldn't save money. But here's what I am saying. If your trust is in your savings account, that's not a good place to be. God wants us to be in a place where our trust is in Him. Lord, you're going to provide. This season that I'm in of the already in your kingdom but not yet in your kingdom is not about bigger homes, better families. It's about bringing glory to your name and bringing as many people into the kingdom as possible. That's what it's about. And I can trust you to provide as I seek first your kingdom. See, grumbling usually feeds our unbelief, but our unbelief does not change God's daily faithfulness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the God you serve and worship doesn't change is still good and committed to you. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that he's good and committed to you when you get it right? Maybe you're in a season when you're doing pretty well. You're not complaining too much. You are giving thanks. You are serving well. And so you know, you know God's committed to me. That's, that's cool. It's, I don't really deserve it. Okay, I admit it. But you know, God's, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. God's going to do what he's supposed to do. Do you recognize that even when you don't do what you're supposed to do, God still does what he's promised to do? In fact, often what happens is we'll begin to grumble because we think, I did my part, God. Why didn't you do yours? But God always does his part. God always does what we need. He always brings the provision we need. There's a great proverb, uh, Proverbs chapter 30. There's a prayer uh, of this man named Agur. We don't really know who he is. We just know his prayer is recorded in Proverbs 30. Here's his prayer. Listen, he prays, give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is not a prayer to be middle class, by the way. This is a prayer to say, God, help me to be content with your provision and believe that that's what I need today. And if I'm lacking, help me to go to you for that lack and see you provide, lest I'm tempted to steal. And if I have a lot, let me be generous and give it away. Lest i be tempted to go, I don't really need God, I have this. That's the prayer. So what happens next, verse 22. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath day to the Lord, Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left is, uh, is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till morning, and Moses commanded, and it did not stink, and, and there were no worms in it. So when they did what God uh, said, things worked out the right way. And Moses said, Eat it today, for tomorrow is the Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, it, but on the seventh day, which is a the Sabbath, there will be... None. Now, now, what's happening? It's, it's pretty obvious here that God's saying, look, I'm commanding one day of seven in, uh, for a rest. Now, we haven't got to the Ten Commandments yet. God hasn't given his law yet. But in the creation account we saw, this is what God does. God creates six days, seventh day he rests. He's setting a pattern for us. And commanding us to follow that pattern. God has created us to have this rhythm of rest. Work, rest. Work, rest. Now, we're really bad keeping this rhythm. Some of us, we just don't work enough. We get lazy. Some of us, we never know how to stop working. Most of us flop back and forth with that. But God creates a pattern. Work, rest, work, rest, for the benefit of his people. And here he's beginning to say, look, this is going to be an identifying characteristic of my people. They're going to obey this command to rest. But also notice, listen, he's not just giving a command to rest. He's providing for rest. He's providing for rest. This is the whole point. There are times and seasons where to be obedient to the command to provide for your family, you work more than one job. We had a season where we were attempting to plant a church in the state of North Carolina. After being full-time on staff at a church, we we left that position, went to North Carolina to to plant a church. We had almost no financial support from any church when we did this. A little bit, but not much. So I would work two jobs and try to do the work of planting a church. Guess what happened? Nothing. It, it, nothing. It never got off the ground. And after about a year, I was so exhausted and burned out, I just said, I can't do this anymore. Why? Was I being disobedient? I, was, I, was, I thought I wasn't. But at the end of the day, I definitely wasn't saying, God, i got to trust you to provide, and i got to have enough faith to rest, which is what we see in verse 27. Because it says, On the seventh day, some of the people went out together, and they found none even though he said, don't, go out together. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Isn't that interesting? God's people disobey the law, but God says, Moses, how long are you going to do this? That's going to be important for later on. God communicating to Moses as if he represents all the people. That's important. See, God says, verse 29, the Lord uh, has given you the Sabbath, therefore... On the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so finally, verse 30, the people rested on the seventh day. They're beginning to finally say, okay, God, we trust you. And rest is definitely an act of faith. It really is. Now, verses 31 to 35, when we read them, you'll see they kind of don't fit chronologically. Chronologically. Because God hasn't given us this law. They're just beginning the wilderness wanderings, and yet it talks about after 40 years when they finish the wanderings. So this is probably Joshua adds this to the account that Moses is writing down to say this is the lesson meant for the reader to learn. So it fits in the context, but it doesn't fit chronologically. Listen to this, verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name Manna, which literally means what is it? It was like coriander seed white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. did not sound too bad. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded, let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, and so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept, this is a a reference to what it looks like inside the temple, which hasn't even been commanded to be made yet, or the tabernacle, I should say. And it says, verse 35, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to the habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan, and an omer is a tenth of an ephah. And I know you guys were just begging to know what an omer was, so there you go. (laughs) But do you you see what God's doing here? Do you see why Joshua would have put this here? When we're talking about here, the, the, the big point that we're trying to see here is how grumbling often leads to unbelief. It feeds unbelief when we complain about what we have or don't have. It feeds this unbelief that we're naturally prone to. And how does God overcome the unbelief? By providing rest and calling us to remember. That's how he overcomes our unbelief. He doesn't just wag his finger at them. He doesn't just tell them off for getting it wrong. He provides rest and calls them to remembrance. This is exactly what God calls us to do. Listen. Jesus would say this in in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus would say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is our Sabbath. He's our rest. We don't have to work and earn and strive to be right with God because Jesus provides that. He provides that. Through his perfect life, we don't obey perfectly. He did. Through his substitutionary death, we deserve death, but he died in our place. Through his resurrected life, we can't conquer death. Not even the death that resides in our own hearts, but he does conquer death. He's defeated it already. That's why he says, come to me. You have rest. This is what we're meant to do at Communion. Communion is not about, when we, when we go and we take the, the, the bread and the wine, we're going to do this next week. When we do this, it's not about going, okay, I've got to think about how bad have I been this week and, and, and do, should I do Am I worthy to take this? That's not what communion is. Communion is, is us recognizing, except for his broken body and spilled blood, I would never be able to commune with my God. And no matter how I've failed today, this week or this lifetime, he's paid the price that I can be washed clean so I can commune with him in rest. Do you get it? See, when we're grumbling, we're basically saying, God, you haven't provided rest for me, but he has. Can you see where this starts getting serious? Can you see where we start complaining about what our life is, where we think our life is going, what, do you, what we think our life is about, and we get our eyes off what God has already provided for us, which is everything in Jesus. And that is just a manifestation of our own unbelief. And God calls us to walk by faith. Well, here's what's amazing. We get to chapter 17, and things go from bad to worse. What happens? It says, All the congregation of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. So there's a lot of them. There's probably maybe in upwards of around 2 million people, so it's going to take a while for them to move. According to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at, at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. We've been there before. Now, now, I don't know about you, but have you ever seen God come through for you? And then after you've seen him come through for you, when that situ- situation comes up again, you go, okay, God, it's all right. You're going to take care of this. Have you done that? It's a good thing to do. You know, we, we've lived here for, our family's lived here for 19 years, and we've never had the kind of money it takes for us to go to America. Never. To fly seven of us, when the kids were small, we'd all go together. We just never had that money. And so when we'd go back, we'd go back maybe every three or four years. I think we went back as a family like four times in the, in the last 19 years. And every single time, it was through supernatural provision. Every single time. God would just, we wouldn't tell people what we needed. God would just put it on someone's heart. Hey, when, when are you coming back again? Not sure, we'll see. Hey, we want to help. Can we help? You know, just every single time God would provide. And I have to say, every time we'd say, we think we should go, and we'd start praying. The first couple weeks I'm going, it's going to be exciting to see how God provides. The next six or eight weeks I was trembling. Oh God, if you don't do this, my kids are going to be so stumbled. My, the grandparents are going to be so mad. Lord, why don't you provide for us? even though he'd done, he had done so time and time and time again. And the Israelites are in this situation. they have been in a place where there was no water to drink, but here they are. It says, they weren't just now grumbling. Verse 2 says, and the people quarreled with Moses. This is like loud arguing. Not just like, oh, it's hard, but like, what are you doing? And they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Do you see what's changed here? God was testing them. He's wanting to show them what's in their heart. And they're like, ha, we're going to put God to the test. We want to see what's in in his heart. But hadn't God already showed them what is in his heart? Hadn't God already revealed his heart to his people by delivering them from Egypt, by providing in the past? Verse 3 says, but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cries to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are already ready to stone me. Now, this is their grumbling growing into, we might call it, a murderous accusing. Because they're not just accusing Moses of bringing them death by leading them out to the wilderness, they want to see Moses dead. They want him to die. They're ready to pick up rocks and just let him have it. This is serious business. And there's something about this too because these are God's people who God has delivered. God has sent them a deliverer. He sends them Moses. They bring them out of their slavery. And what do they want to do? We want to kill the deliverer. Does that sound familiar? Because that definitely foreshadows what what the nation of Israel does with Jesus, what we do in our own hearts with Jesus. When Jesus is showing himself to be God's only son and claiming that so clearly that they think he's blaspheming by, by equating himself with God, it says in John chapter 10, the Jews picked up stones again to stone Jesus. He's the one that sent to the Jews to deliver them and he wants, the Jews want him dead. And we do the same thing in our hearts. God sends us Jesus and we just wish he never would have come or I never would have heard the gospel, or none of it was true. And we feel that way when we think God hasn't given me what I need. And when we feel that way, we're missing the main important point, that God has given us what we need most in Jesus. And if he freely gave us his son, the Bible says in Romans eight thirty two, if God so freely gave us his son, will he not with him also give us all things? So what happens? The Lord says to Moses, verse 5, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, he wants those leaders to see what's going to happen, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, now you remember the staff in Exodus? You remember what happened with the staff? When God's going to judge Egypt, As we said earlier, what does he do? He takes drinkable water and makes it undrinkable. And he does this by taking the staff. represents God's authority and God's judgment. And boom, he strikes the water. The water turns to blood. The staff is a staff of judgment. This is really important. The the, the people who would have first experienced this, the elders who would have first saw this, people who would have first read this, they would have seen this, the staff of, of judgment. Okay? In verse 6, God says, behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so on the side of the elders. Do you understand what's happening here? God says, take the strike, take the rod of judgment, hit me with it. what He's saying. You hit me with it. And when you hit me with it, that's when the water of life will flow. Now listen, I am not trying to find something in the Bible that's not really there. A lot of people do that. I've done it before, trying really hard to make sure that that's not happening. This is exactly how the New Testament handles this picture. Listen to me. This is definitely another foreshadowing of how God identifies Himself with the rock In order that the rock might be judged and the people might be saved. Listen, here's what the scripture says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2 to 4, all were baptized into Moses, speaking of the Israelites, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate from the same spiritual food, that's the manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's the picture. That's the picture. That when God sees his people grumbling to the point of unbelief, grumbling to the point of demanding that the deliverer die, he says, Let me take that punishment. So I can provide for you all that you need. Now, let me make sure I'm being really clear because I don't want anybody to misunderstand this. This is not God saying, Well, maybe I messed up. Fine, I'll take my punishment. No. God has done nothing but deliver these people, be faithful to these people. Help these people. Promise to provide for these people. Give them a deliverer. They want the deliverer dead. And God says, I'll take that judgment on myself. God's solution to their grumbling was to, to strike the rock. You see, here's the thing that we need to get through our heads. God's grace is always greater than our grumbling. Uh, this is not me trying to give you liberty to go ahead and not believe. You don't have to believe, just you know, be the normal, unfaithful people that we tend to be. It's fine, God's grace covers that. No, it's just the opposite. I'm saying, don't you recognize how great and amazing God's grace actually is? That even we see this in the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament's supposed to be God's the God of anger, He's the bad God, He's the mean one, Jesus is the nice one, remember? That's what everybody thinks. That's the mistake that everyone makes. No, in the Old Testament, what do we see? God showing himself to be the God of grace. The God who takes on his own wrath to provide living water for his people. That's the gospel, man. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Do you believe? Do you believe this? What's interesting about this is what verse 7 says, and we read this before, right, at the very beginning. They they named the place Masa and Meribah, which basically means testing and quarreling, kind of not to forget what they were doing towards God because they tested the Lord. And this is the test they said. Is the Lord among us or not? Can we believe that this God is actually going to not just get us out of Egypt, but to the promised land? Can God get us through the already to the not yet? Is God going to be faithful all the way through? Okay, I've become a Christian now, and yeah, it gives me some meaning, or it answers some questions, but life is also harder in some ways. It's difficult. Is God going to get us through? What's the answer to that question? Absolutely, emphatically, yes and amen. He will do it because of his grace. He will do it. It's interesting. This scene, this, this testing that we see in, in, in the last part of, or the first part of chapter 17, this is used by the psalmist in Psalm 95 as a warning against unbelief. Listen to this, Psalm 95, verses 6 to 9. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah or as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Do you see what God says to His people? Don't harden your hearts. You can trust God. You don't have to test Him. You can trust Him. He's proven Himself already. He's promised to always, to never leave us or forsake us. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews does a, this amazing job of, of applying Psalm 95 to New Testament believers. And, and I'm just going to read a part of it. Just listen to this. Hebrews chapter 3. Here he is quoting Psalm 95. It says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Not the sin of deceit, the deceitfulness of sin. Here's what sin does. Here how, here's how sin deceives us. Whatever your sin that you're into. Uh, In one sense, how your human brokenness, and all of us are broken, all fall short of the glory of God, all of us are born with a bent towards sin. However, that brokenness shows itself in your life, whether it's just in greed or selfishness or self-consumption, or in your appetites gone without control, or in just your general neglect of good things. However, that brokenness shows itself. Listen, what that sin does is deceive you in thinking it's not that big a deal. No big deal. Everybody sins. You just said it, John. And it deceives us. It tells us did Jesus really have to die for me? My sins aren't really that big of a deal. Why does it have to be so dramatic? It deceives us. And, And this is the thing. We tend to look at what's evil, and we name whatever moral sins we felt like we don't do. You ever notice that? Oh, those, those people that are involved in that sexual sin, that's gross. That's bad. It's an abomination to God, as we are involved in things that are of a different category. We all condemn sins in categories that we feel like we have some victory over. But we always kind of judge ourselves nicely on the categories that we struggle with. This is what we do. But the evil, listen, that he's talking about is not the evil of of even just ignoring the sins that you're in a category of. It's the evil of what? Unbelief. An unwillingness to trust the God who's proven himself through the person and work of Jesus. Unbelief. There's two applications I want to close with this. The one is this. If you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you're just still checking this Jesus stuff out, you're still thinking about Christianity, you're not really sure what it's about, know this. I'm going to make this super simple. It's about Jesus. It's about who he is, what he's done for you, and what he's done for you is to take the punishment that you deserve and I deserve and take that on himself. He was the rock that God struck. He did that on the cross. And he rose from the dead to prove that what he did was Enough. And if you'll put your faith in him, you can have a relationship with God, forgiven of all your sins, knowing where your home is, which is in heaven with him. Here's the thing that's keeping you. It's your sin of unbelief. Oh, yeah, there, there's probably other. I know there's lots of other junk in there. There's probably way more junk than you even are, are even aware of. Way more. It's probably way worse than you're even aware of. But Christ died for that. He's paid the price so that you could be forgiven and transformed if you'll trust him. So the sin you need to repent of, first and foremost, is unbelief. Do that today. Don't mess about anymore. If you're going to not too sure, why? What is keeping you from believing? Seriously, tell me. I want to know. Because I'll tell you this, after 30 plus years in ministry, you ain't going to tell me nothing I haven't heard before. You're not going to tell me anything my own heart has not muttered. And the reality is, Jesus is worthy to be trusted. Our God is worthy to be trusted. That's one thing I want you to think about today. Not just not grumbling, but at receiving grace. So you know your life has something to be thankful for. But here's the other thing. The way the author of Hebrews uses this story, uses his his kind of unpacking of Psalm 95, I'm going to read it again. What does he say? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, heart un, an evil unbelieving heart. He says, leading you to fall away from the living God. This is about relationship, not religion. He says, but exhort one another every day. Do you know what helps us as Jesus followers stay Jesus followers? You know what one of the things that God has given us so that we can keep following Jesus and, and deal with our unbelief? Each other. Each other. One of the things I've been reading about over this last year or so is the change in church attendance since COVID. That almost every single person who was committed to church before COVID attends church less. Almost everyone, statistically. Now here's the interesting thing. There's also many people, the statistics are probably tweaked by the fact that many people said, I'm done with Christianity. Life's too hard. The grumbling of, of being in lockdown led to, unbelief led to, forget it, I don't trust this God anymore. That's, that skews some of the statistics. But also some of it is, I think all of us had this feeling of, is my life being stolen from me, wasted? So that when we get through lockdown, we start thinking, I've got to get back my life. But the scripture says for us as Jesus followers that Jesus is our life. And and he gives us new life to share with each other so that we can enjoy that new life. Because we need each other now more than ever. So I hope as we close that you're not just thinking, okay, I got to stop complaining. Because the phrase, mustn't grumble, falls way short of what we're talking about here, doesn't it? Because this is not just about not complaining. This is about recognizing a grace that God gives us in Jesus, that gives us a, a reason to be thankful, a reason to be hopeful, a reason to trust Him for whatever we need, and a reason for us to come together and tell one another, you can trust Jesus. Amen? Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you that today would be the day of salvation, that they would be willing to confess to you their unbelief and ask for the faith to be saved. Do that, Lord, please. You did it for us. Do it for these here who may not know you. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, you know us. And we pray you'd help us to encourage one another to trust you. Lord, we declare corporately right now that you are trustworthy. And we pray you would fill us with your spirit and help us to trust one another. For we pray it in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says, amen. Before you guys go, I have a couple of quick announcements that I, I, I want to make. They're on the back of this. Uh, just practical things. But tied into us uh, loving one another. Men, uh, we have a men's day next Saturday. You can either go, you can go to the back table and sign up with the little, what are those things called again? The little box thingies? <laughs> UR codes, gosh. Uh, you, can, you can do, uh, you can flash it with your phone if you know how to do that kind of stuff and sign up that way. Or if you're like me and you're old, just sign up on the piece of paper that's on the back table so that we know the numbers. You can pay on the day. But we really would love it if every, uh, every gentleman in the, in the church was there. It's going to be a really good day of fellowship. Next week is our bring and share, and I needed to kind of make sure you guys were clear about some of the updated guidelines, okay? The do's and don'ts are on, the, on this page, okay? Pretty basic stuff. Do bring something, a side dish or a dessert or a main dish. Bring enough for your party. So if you're a party of one, bring enough for your party and one other person. So if you're a party one, bring a party of two. If you're a party of six, bring enough for seven. Do you understand how that works? Pretty simple. That way we don't have to go to the store and last minute and gather stuff. And also that way the guests who come and don't know it's bring and share can stay. Pretty simple, right? Uh, do please do feel free to make something that reflects your culture. I think we have something like 13 different cultures represented in the church. Bring it on. We want to see it. Just to, just tell us what it is. <laughs> if it's like, especially if it's spicy, some people can't eat spicy, that's fine. There'll be plenty left for me. I love spicy food. All right? Uh, do invite your friends. So bringing share your Sunday is a great Sunday to, to invite your friends. Um, don't bring rice dishes, which I know this is like most cultural dishes tend to have rice in them. Don't bring rice dishes unless, unless you can bring it in a slow cooker or a rice cooker that we can plug in. If you, if you don't have a slow cooker, talk to me. I think I have one or two that, from the church that are old ones that you guys could use or have, okay? But you, we have to have it in a slow cooker because rice can go off in the two and a half hours it gets to a temperature that just can be dangerous. So we just can't take any chances. So just, if you, if you have a slow cooker, put in a slow cooker. You have a rice cooker, rice cooker. But you can do that, okay? And also don't forget, it's next week, all right? So we'll see you with food next week. And house group, if you haven't gotten plugged in a house group, go look at the sign back door, back on the table, and go to a house group. God bless you guys.